Welcome to Tez Podagogy. My guest today is Professor Sam Twistleton, Director of the Sheffield Institute of Education at Sheffield Hallam University. Today we are talking about the role of initial teacher training in defining and developing the pedagogy of new teachers. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast, Sam. Um, should we kick off by talking about some of the unfair reputation you ITT sort of gathered, be it from government circles or on social media? Um, I guess you could say in some circles it's been under attack a little bit. Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on your sources as to what kind of reputation you think ITT has got, certainly mm. if you look at social media and certainly if you hear... Um, some parts of the uh, of the DfE talk about it, you would get the impression that it's in a terrible state. And I'm not going to um, sit here and, and defend that everything is perfect because it, it never is. Um, and, and also, um, one of the biggest things that we found when I was on the Carter Review, where we had a really good look at teacher training across the whole English system, um, is uh, the expectations that are on it particularly given the length it is for most people, which is less than a year, um, are unrealistic. So uh, I think you have to kind of bear that in mind. Having said that, you know, I don't want either to kind of go along with an understanding that everybody thinks it is in a mess, because actually you hear Sean Hart talk about it from the perspective, and it's the highest performing sector that they inspect. Um, I should have the statistics in front of me, I'm afraid I don't, but, you know, a large proportion of the sector is is outstanding and has been for some time. Um, you actually can't continue as a provider if you are anything less than good. Um, if, if you are uh, deemed to be required improvement, then you get the chance to have another reinspection, and if you still requires improvement, then you are closed down. So, you know, you could argue that some of, some of the possibly fair poor reputation it might have had several years ago has been sort of pretty dramatically been weeded out by that process um i mean i could talk more about why i think the the, the expectations are unrealistic um, but perhaps we can come back to that later maybe if we're going to talk about how we need to support people when they're in the early stages of their career and that, how that could be um, a way to address that problem. Is that okay? Or yeah, I thought we should we'll come back now? to that in, in a little bit, I think, but towards the end of the podcast. Um, for now, if, if we look at the reasons, perhaps, why some of that criticism is, is heading your way on social media, I mean, there, there appears to be an insinuation that uh, some of the teacher training is ideologically driven or that you're defining a certain type of pedagogy. And I think really interesting to look at is, you know, what role does ITT have in, in developing pedagogy? I mean, what is the, the aim? Is it for a teacher to find their own uh, most comfortable place informed by research in terms of how they teach? Or is it about instructing them on a certain type of teaching or, and a way of teaching or, or perhaps a balance somewhere in there? <laughs> You've answered your own question. <laughs> Um, I think particularly particularly on postgraduate courses, you know, in recent years, the vast majority of them have moved to master's level, mm -hmm. which means they have to be um, explicitly at a level uh, above where you finish as a graduate. And um, so it's what called is level level seven. And uh, a massive part of that is that you have to be a really critically reflective uh, person who is able to compare, contrast and critique different approaches. And so a, a large part of, what we, part of what we try and do, certainly in the university part of the training, is, is to um, facilitate that kind of thinking. And actually, you really can't think like that if you are only experiencing one way of doing things. So we actually do actively encourage um, 
experience of and observation of um, a variety of different ways. Having said that, um, my own research and my own experience as a teacher when I was a teacher in school, um, you know, it's an important part of what makes you effective. an effective teacher is, is over time to develop your own beliefs about what works for you with your children. And um, therefore, you know, it's, it's not that we want people to be con- constantly changing, chopping and changing how they um, approach their practice. It, it's more that you need to go through a process of comparing, cont- contrasting, critiquing, looking at the evidence base, understanding that things that will work in one context won't work in another, or in, in one age phase won't work in another age phase, or in one subject won't work in another subject. But, you know, there's an, an awful lot of complexity that you really have to get to grips with. Um, having said that, as part of the Carter review, I would say one of the things that we found from some of our conversations with providers and tended possibly to get this more with universities, but I don't think it was exclusive to universities, is there is a danger that we get so caught up in the complexity of it all and the need to do all the things that I just discussed. Actually, we forget for the poor trainee teacher on the ground who is facing you know, maths with two hay on Monday morning. Yeah. Um, actually, what they don't really need at that point <laughs> is is lots and lots of um, high-level conversations about complexity. What they need is some basic tools <laughs> that will help them survive that experience and, and survive it intact and um, have, have enough sort of uh, confidence as, as a result of it to be able to learn from it. So you've always got this kind of balancing act between actually here's some things that are going to work that we know will work, we've got the evidence will work, and you know keep it simple and do it like this as you're learning. But uh, alongside that, try and have this understanding of a bigger picture and a more complex range of things that can impact on children's learning. And uh, one of the things that I'm very keen on, and we saw some really good examples of this um when we're out and about with the Carter Review, is really understanding the sort of stages of development that student teachers go through mm. and the fact that early on they do need lots of practical things. It's probably best to mainly focus on those to start with because until they've got beyond the point where they're not absolutely petrified that their behaviour and their routines and all the rest of it is, is going to go completely wrong for them, um, they're not really able to think about anything else. So you almost need to just acknowledge that and focus on that initially and then you know, recognise that the the bigger picture stuff needs to come a bit later. And some people have done that really, really well, both in university and school-led provision. You know, I wouldn't say it's um, one or the other that's kind of got it right there. I'm interested in that that student development. I mean, do a lot of teachers, uh, trainee teachers, come in with an idea of teaching how their favourite teacher taught, and how often yeah. does that then? They, they, do they have a point of realisation where they go, actually, that, that's not me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is a really common thing. And I would say um, you find it really particularly so on undergraduate courses, particularly where you've got people who have come straight from school into um, doing an undergraduate uh, QTS course. Mm. Um, you know, so they're, they're only 18-year-olds themselves, and their most recent experience of school was as a pupil. Mm. And that, you know, it's obviously seen through a particular lens, as you say, it's often based on who their best and worst teachers were. <laughs> it also tends to sort of facilitate a sort of fairly superficial understanding of what being a good teacher looks like. And so they're often very much sort of focused on needing to be in control and getting things finished and you know it's all about the sort of observable things that you can see as a pupil that teachers do 
as opposed to some of the more complex things. With postgraduates and particularly more mature you know, career changes, people who've got a bit of life, life experience under their belt, they've tended to, you know, I think that, that's so far distance and probably they've had other life experiences and maybe if they've been a parent as well, um, they've probably had enough thrown at them to realise that, you know, life isn't quite as sort of black and white as maybe it yeah. seems when you're seeing it from that 18-year-old's perspective. But definitely they, they do need to go on a journey uh, and different student teachers will do that at different rates. Um, some will cling on to that identity of a sort of, as you say, a sort of fairly crude uh, understanding of, you know, a particular teacher that they want to be. And for some of them, it can be devastating when they realise they can't be that person. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they do have to go through a process of realisation that actually, you know, what, what worked with that particular charismatic person um, isn't going to be the way forward for them. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be a failure. Um, they just need to find another way. I do you find that you know that there is a there is a, a lot of negativity around the profession at, at the moment uh, a lot of it very justified in terms of workload is that yeah. seeping through into the attitudes that the new trainees are arriving with are, are they are they already a little bit frightened of the profession at that stage yeah i mean i would say obviously the ones who are most frightened have been put off and haven't don't get as far as as being on the course unfortunately as the you know recent recruitment statistics are showing um we are getting less people getting to that point of even of applying i think the ones who who do get do get as far as starting their course i mean they will have been through a fairly rigorous process in terms of their selection because one of the things we don't want to do is um bring people onto courses who are then going to drop out or are going to fail because they've got an unrealistic expectation of what's in store we you know all providers will make sure that they've had quite a bit of experience in school and you know they're coming into it with their eyes wide open so if they've got as far as being at the beginning of the course they probably do have more realistic expectations than they might have um having said that you know the press doesn't help um because it, it can sometimes skew their understanding of what it's going to be like and actually for many of them you know it can be a pleasant surprise um to, to realise actually, you know, with the right leadership team in a school, um, things can be managed, you know, in a much more comfortable way and it doesn't have to be anything like as bad as maybe the sort of worst headlines make it seem. Do you find that when they do go out into placements uh, or perhaps they go onto social media, do you have to sort of um, prepare their expectations? So, for example, if they went to a school that was perhaps, you know, having a struggling at that moment um, and... Yeah. to say, you know, you might get some negativity there, or to say, you know, if you go onto Twitter, it's a, it's a fantastic resource, Twitter, but there's some very yeah. confrontational, combative yeah. uh, people on there. And it, do, we, do you have to sort of not protect them? Because I, I don't want to patronise them in that way, but do you have to sort of prepare them for the realities that, every, uh, you know, there, there is a robust sector where people have very strong views? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not so much as protecting them as balancing their understanding. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the most dominant in, influence on a, on a student is going to be the school that they're in. Mm. You know, we can do what we like in the university or in the centre of, of the skit or, or wherever else the training is happening. Um, what's going on day in, day out in the classrooms they're in and in the staff rooms that they're having their lunch in and so on is going to be the, by far the most dominant thing, the most influential thing. Now, you're right. You know, it could be that your first experience in a school might be quite negative. 
Um, you know, many students will experience, you know, the, the, the teacher who always sits in the same chair in the staff room and questions why on earth they're coming into the profession and, you know, um, makes them feel quite bad about uh, their, their career choice from day one. Um, and if you're really unlucky, that can be the culture of a whole school. And if you were really, really unlucky, you know, you could be spending the whole of your first term or even in the case of employment-based routes, you know, most of your training in that context. Mm. I think what a good teacher training provider will try and do is give them different kinds of experiences early on, well, throughout, but, but early on as well. I mean, one of the things that we do here is we have very short focused intensive placements where they might just spend even a single day or sometimes a week in in some hand-selected schools where often lots of students will go into a few schools just to do something very focused mm. uh, but it can be very high impact in terms of you know they're going to be the very best schools because they've been selected for that purpose they're doing something a bit different and very energizing and that can be just enough to balance out you know the harder days which, you know, we can't pretend the schools don't exist where those more negative experiences are going to happen. But as long as they know it doesn't all have to be like that, um, I think that, that makes a huge difference. I think the other thing is very consciously setting up peer networks. Um, again, we saw the sort of best and worst of this um, on the Carter Review. So we saw some new skits where they were very small in numbers and quite often one student would be the only person who was um, teaching at their particular subject if it was a secondary skit. And they had no one to go to other than their school, really, um, for supporting that subject. Whereas uh, the better providers, and again, it can happen to skits and, and in universities, had very deliberately sort of set them up to have a, a group of peers around them who, even if it's just electronically while they're on placement you know they were able to be in constant touch with and that again that just helps to balance out the views and make it not seem it can be, it can be quite a sort of isolated insular kind of experience if you're not careful and i think you have to really consciously uh, work on that i think you know teach first are very conscious of that because obviously they are spending the majority of their time in one school um, on that program so they balance that out through lots and lots of interactions you know both virtually and physically and when you get um, feedback from, um, from, from, from these trainees that are going out into these schools, is there a, a group of things that schools could do to help those trainees more? I know there's some fantastic schools with some really good mentors in those schools. Yeah. But are there common issues that perhaps if you're a teacher in a school at the moment and you think, oh, I'd really like to help you know, the student or the NQT coming in, the, the, this is the thing that they could do? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're right to mention mentors and um, both the research and the experience of being on the Carter Review is that that can be the make or break thing. Mm. If you've got a really good mentor, that will make a huge difference, no matter how challenging your pupils and, you know, how difficult you're finding your subject or whatever it is. If you've got a good mentor, you'll, you'll get through it. And if you haven't, that could be the thing that actually means that you drop out. Um, having said that, being a good mentor isn't just about doing the support on a one-to-one -one basis and giving useful feedback and useful advice. Their very best mentors tend to be in schools where quite often they've got quite a number of students and maybe they'll have a few NQTs as well. And therefore, you know, what I was just saying earlier about the, the idea of a sort of peer support network becomes much more possible. So that, again, a good mentor will build that into how they work with the students in the school so that they're building in time for those students to work together you know, it might be planning together and that can help with workload. It can be sort of peer teaching. It can be peer review. There's a whole range of ways that they can make that experience much more positive and much more constructive. 
Now, I suppose the other thing that I would mention as well is one of the things that excites me about school-led ITE, whatever form it's in, is at its best, what you see people doing is using the school context as being the most powerful play, place for where the best learning happens as far as the student teachers are con concerned mm. and really constructing um, the, the time there in a way that's going to really maximise that. So it, it's, it's so much more than the kind of traditional placement I had when I was a PGC student many years ago where really you just went into somebody's class to practice, which obviously you do need some of that, um, but actually really kind of carefully constructed programmes of observation where you move around a school or even a, ideally a cluster of schools observe, observing the very best teachers you know, in particular aspects of whatever is needed at that time. So going back to what I said early, earlier, you know, in near the beginning of somebody's training, probably how to establish good behaviour is going to be a priority, whereas later on it might be something, you know, more sophisticated, more complex than that. Uh, but to recognise the power of things like observation, things like the ability to team teach, peer review, school-based training where you're actually doing some training sessions involving pupils as well as experienced teachers with the student teachers. You know, we, we saw some fantastic examples of things like us and all the students that we spoke to reported that that was by far the most impactful part of their experience was where people were doing that. So that's, that's why I personally, although I work in a university, I'm very much a fan of school-led if it means that you're putting schools in the driving seat in a way that they can really create those kinds of experiences for their students. You don't have to not be in partnership with a university for that to happen. I think if you get it right, you get a, a combination of kind of both both sort of perspectives. And you find, you mentioned um, behaviour there, which is obviously yeah. one of the most contentious topics perhaps yes. in, in, in education. How as a provider could you can you um, tackle that issue in a non-ideological way, in, in the sense that you know, yeah. <laughs> you'll get one one child and five teachers, and each of those five teachers will give you five different ways of, of tackling that child's behaviour from 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 a no a zero tolerance response to a, to a very restorative, perhaps, or, or a very um, laissez-faire, should we say, responses to two extremes. Yeah, I mean, I think again, possibly sometimes. ITE providers shoot themselves in the foot a little bit and certainly we found this in the Carter review and then you may be aware I was on the on Tom Bennett's ITE expert oh, group yeah. that was part of the follow-up of that and um, it, 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 it's possible to fall into a trap I think as an ITE provider of, of um, recognizing what you've just said there as being true as, which it is and almost using that as an excuse to not do something more straightforward about it. Okay. So it's almost kind of like it's so complicated, you've got to understand all these different perspectives, and of course you do, um, but never actually from take, going from that complexity into, well, actually, here are some fairly standard things that we know will work in most situations. And so by standard things, I'm not necessarily talking about the most complex child who, who has such diverse needs that, that there will be... Uh, not a necessarily straightforward answer. But for many behaviour situations, there are some straightforward answers. And a lot is to do with what we ended up writing in the report, you know, how you develop the relationships, how you set the routines, how you set the boundaries. You know, there, there, are, there are some proven things that for the majority of children and the majority of contexts will work. And I think recognising the ones that are most important uh, very early on as you are sort of trying to find your, your, your feet as a teacher 
um, can make a huge, huge difference to how how much you're then able to develop and how quickly your progress accelerates. And so the best providers, and, and lots of people do do this, I'm not being negative about my sector, the best providers put a lot of thought and time and effort into that. Uh, it, it's true to say a lot of it has to happen in the school context. You know, there are certain things that you can do in a lecture theatre and some of these things can be discussed and sometimes it's useful to be away from a school to have that discussion. But in terms of really giving people the tools that they need to feel confident and that are going to work, you do have to put quite a lot of time and effort into what happens in the early school experiences. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, really, about school-based training and um, good mentors. And, you know, if, if, if they can be doing that um, in those early days... Um, you, you will then reap the benefits because that means that you can quickly move beyond the, those, those sort of basic things that are needed and get into the more interesting, in a way, more complicated, but fascin- ultimately fascinating um, aspects of children's learning that you're ready for once you know you've got the sort of basics in place. And you mentioned there, you know, the importance of the school, but I've been in schools where they have a very um, directed style of pedagogy so they will say we like it done like this this is the type of teacher we're looking for obviously if you're on an ITT course you haven't you haven't necessarily chosen that school so no do is there ever an issue where perhaps a young teacher that's trying to find you know their their what they believe is good teaching you know they're doing all the research they can do is there a danger that they go to a school like that and come back and say well you know what they said I have to teach like this and you know, this may affect the, the, the quality of my teaching or this is really, like, uh, I don't feel comfortable teaching like this. Yes, I mean, I think that that, that probably happens quite a lot uh, and it's something that we will prepare them for and we will talk about. I think it, it's also important, though, not to just automatically assume that because there is a fairly sort of um, directed um, format for how people are asked to teach, that's necessarily going to be a bad thing. Yeah. I, I would certainly say for some students, it's actually quite a useful sort of structure early on in their experience to have something like that to follow and probably we would ask them to talk to a school about you know why they've made those decisions and what the evidence base is and and hopefully there might be some good reasons that come back from that um having said that you know you will find that sometimes um the format that's been chosen for that school that multi-academy trust is not right for those students um, and part of the skill they have to develop is knowing how to adapt. So, you know, we would encourage them to stick with that skill and learn how to work with it. But this comes back to what I was saying earlier about also trying to make sure we've systematically built in experiences of other ways of doing things in other schools so that ultimately they get that, uh, 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 that opportunity to sort of compare and contrast but also it can give it can guide their thinking in terms of the kind of teacher they want to be, the kind of place they want to work and so on. Um, and again, this is where it's quite constraining on the very short courses, on the you know, the one less than a year courses, how much of that you can do it so much easier on the longer um three year or four year courses because you can build in a lot of variety. Whereas um, you know, it could be as few as two schools that are experienced on a on a shorter PGC. So we, we actually go beyond that and try and build in more of these, as I say, short, sharp experiences, which might not be very long in, in length, but they're still probably enough. Well, we, we believe that they are enough to just give them, to help them that, you know, open their eyes to other ways of doing things. It's also really beneficial if they can get the chance to have uh, an international 
experience. I used to work in Cumbria and it was really, really beneficial just hopping across the border into Scotland for, an, for a placement or even a shorter experience. And it's not massively different, but it's different enough for them to realise, oh, there's ways of different, different ways of doing things. There's a slightly different curriculum. There's a slightly different way that schools organise themselves. And that that is just enough to help them to realise, actually, there's a bigger picture that I'm dealing with here. And uh, I probably need to open my eyes a bit more and, and, you know, understand it a bit better. It's not as quite as straightforward as maybe I originally thought. I guess that helps when um, perhaps a teacher, I mean, is trying to be, you know, helpful and might go to the trainee and say, oh, no, you know, this isn't how it should be done. If you look at this piece of research, this, this, is, this is the best way of doing that. And, I mean, do you, the, the student, obviously, if they have that rounded experience and, and if they've done their reading, because let's be honest, if yeah. they're at university, they're going to be reading so much that they're probably, they're probably well clued up on these, the, the, these theorists or these studies already. But is there a responsibility on that teacher too? I mean, if, if, you know, if there's teachers out there that are teachers that do go and speak to NQTs or students about about how they're teaching is there a right way of approaching that relationship do we need to be wary about what stage the teachers are at and maybe have a little bit more respect for perhaps the amount of reading they've done yeah i think that's you put that very well (laughs) (laughs) you've answered your own question again um yeah i mean absolutely i mean back to what i was saying earlier about you know the move to the master's level you know we need to take that seriously and understand why that is important and it's about situating your practice in a wider evidence base um, and that includes, you know, published research, uh, but also includes, you, you know, all the other things that we've been talking about, the more for informal experiences that give you an evidence base. Uh, but it, it is really important that that happens. Uh, it's also really important that, you know, we acknowledge that people are going to be at a different stage on the journey of, 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 of how much of that evidence base they've engaged with. Um, and certainly I would be wanting mentors um, to, to be well versed in, in that too and it, one of the things that really impressed me on the Carter review is when we went to Cambridge you know the uh, uh, the Cambridge PGC is often talked about as you know being this fantastic example and we saw many similar examples but one of the things that was really very striking there was how they work with their mentors and it's a real badge of honour to be allowed to be a mentor at Cambridge University and you actually have to be able to demonstrate that you're a member of a subject association you have to be up to date in your own reading uh, you're encouraged to do a master's you know you're expected to be research engaged and possibly research active now obviously not all providers can be as as um, selective as that in terms of the mentors that they work with you know if you've got large numbers like we have um we just simply couldn't be quite as draconian as that but you know it's that is a gold standard Uh, actually one of the things i'm doing um shortly after i finish talking to you today is um i'm going to be doing an online um seminar for the chartered college of teachers mentors program so these are the people who are going to mentor the mentoring the people on the chartered teacher program and you know they're taking it really seriously that those mentors have to be you know, right up to date in terms of reading and their own personal critical reflection and, uh, on personal development. And I do think that's important, but I also think I recognise it's hard to juggle that alongside all the other sort of practical demands on teachers' time. Uh, and that's why I'm very, very keen on a system that builds in more professional development time for teachers at every stage of their career, actually, but, but particularly in the early stages. I mean, that brings us to the point we, we, we sort of touched on earlier, which is the sort of final area I wanted to look at, really, which is, yeah. you know, a, a teacher once said to me, he doesn't understand 
helpy some people view ITT training because it says initial for a reason. You know, we're not producing the final package after a year, three years, in some cases yeah. six six weeks if in, in on some courses. But you know, how important is it to to reach beyond as a university provider? to help those students once they've gone on and how important is it for schools to recognize that you know they are getting you know a very clued up teacher but that teacher is going to need continual professional development not just for the first two years for the first five years but you know yeah. for, forever in that sense yeah. and I know you've got a scheme that's sort of looking at that at the moment yeah absolutely yeah so I mean part, partly this comes from some things I've talked about already particularly being on the Carter review um, I don't know if you read it, but I wrote a blog a few weeks ago for the Teachers Roundtable mm. um, entitled What's Our Biggest Blind Spot in Education? And that is exactly the subject that you're referring to there. That uh, if, you, if you listed absolutely everything that all the experts that we spoke to as part of the CART review said was essential in terms of a you know, basic understanding that a new teacher needed, it adds up to five years, which is actually how many years <laughs> a lot of systems give, give it. And, and, and there'd be nothing in that list that you would disagree with and that you wouldn't think, well, some NQT somewhere probably is going to need that fairly early on. But it's just, it's totally unrealistic. First of all, if you try and cram that into the time available, um, it would just wash over. And I think some people do do that sometimes, and that's one of the reasons why IT can get criticised. You cram so much in that actually none of it really sticks. Um but then if you, I think if you if you take that alongside, you know, the, what seems to have been a really ramped up accountability system, certainly since I was an NQT, where I do understand, you know, I spent a lot of time with head teachers, and I do understand why they feel that their feet are to the fire um, in terms of accountability, and they really need all the teachers in their school to be as high performing as possible, and that will include NQTs. But actually, you know, you, you, you take the first bit of what I said and put it alongside that, and the two aren't com on co are simply aren't compatible. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it, I think it's one of the reasons why we do have this high dropout rate in the first three years. Uh, people can't live up to those expectations, so they feel the stress of that, they feel the lack of job satisfaction of that. Um, if you look at the Why Teach report by LK Milk um, on you know, why, why teachers stay in the profession or don't, um, what, one of the things they found was um, the earlier on in their career the teachers they were talking to were, the more likely they were to, were to say that professional development was a huge factor in whether they feel they were getting job satisfaction or not. And that, you know, that's clearly to me a response to the issue that you've highlighted. So we do need that early career support, and most professions would have it. And indeed, you know, in many schools it is there. It's just it's not guaranteed it will be there, and it's probably not as visible as it needs to be for somebody who's wondering whether to go into teacher training and, and take up a career in teaching. You know, if they're not sure that they're going to get the same kind of support that you can very clearly see, say, if you want to be a chartered accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, you know, you can you, you can do a quick Google on any of those professions, and you can see straight away um, what the career path is going to be like for you, what the options will be, what the support will be, what the expectations will be, and it's just simply not like that in in, in teaching at the moment. So we're trying to address that in our region. So we've got this thing called Partnerships for Attainment, which is all the teacher training providers in the Sheffield City region working collaboratively, which is, you know, an amazing thing in itself. It's quite a thing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that's two universities, three skits and teach first, all working together 
um, first of all, to collaborate in terms of how we market and recruit into the region into, in terms of initial teacher education. Then we're collaborating in terms of how we improve our teacher training at the initial point. So we're doing some things jointly as well as the things that we already do separately. But then what we're working on after that, and this is where the QTS reform if it goes ahead as it looked like it might in the consultation, could make a huge, huge difference, is we want to be able to guarantee that if you get your first job in the region, you will get you know, systematic, ongoing, visible, understandable support, um, certainly for the first two years. I mean, I'd like it to be for three years, like you said, really, you know, forever. But, mm. but, but I think, you know, first two years are probably the most important. Um, and potentially the opportunity to begin to specialise as well if you want to. Um, one of the things that we noticed on the Carter Review was some of the really good teaching school lines in multi-academy trusts had really got their act together in the way that they got involved in teacher training in a way that they're linked to a whole idea of a teacher journey throughout their career mm. and had built in sort of professional development pathways, which in some cases led to specialised roles which might work across more than one school, for example. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that is as well as being good professional development is probably a bit of a retention tool as well because um certainly i found about four or five years into my career i was just beginning to be ready for a change um didn't wasn't ready for going into sort of leadership or anything like that i just quite liked the idea of getting out and about a bit yeah. and i think if there'd been a role available such as they're beginning to develop now um you know, that would have that actually probably wouldn't have gone into higher education as i actually did at the time and probably would have stayed and you know, continue to sort of um, be in schools in a, in, a, in a different kind of role. So think, that's what. Sorry, go on. Do you think that it, with all that in mind, are you sort of hopeful? I mean, I mean, this is one example that you're doing there. Are you hopeful that the direction of travel will mean a better experience for the graduates from from your program and other programs? Do you think their their sort of, as you say, the retention of those teachers is more likely going forwards? Yeah, I think if we get this right in terms of what we're planning, the, the vision is the right vision. Um, it's hard without resource, which at the moment we haven't really got. Um, and it's hard, hard without more sort of structural support just in terms of, uh, you know, what the system and what the region ex expects of teachers and head teachers and, and, and so on. Um, this is why, I, I don't know if you read my article that I wrote um, the day the consultation came out on the QTS reform. Mm. You know, I, I felt more optimistic than I had been for a long time because it just seemed to be taking everything in the right direction. You know, obviously, I've heard Justine Greening speak a few times uh, very much along the lines that I've just been speaking in terms of that career support and that career pathway and the importance of it. And that seemed to be taking us, you know, absolutely in that direction. So I just hope the DfE and the new Secretary of State will carry on with that because I think that could make a huge difference uh, in terms of you know our region but I don't think our region is really necessarily any different to any other when we analyze the data because we have very very varying performance of schools in our region and we've looked at pupil data and we've looked at workforce data and um, you know absolutely the most struggling schools are the ones who've got the sort of weakest workforce mm. in terms of the number of people on temporary contracts, the number of people who aren't qualified in the subject that they're teaching, the number of unqualified teachers, the number of NQTs, the, the the amount of turnover in the staff, particularly in the middle and senior leadership team. You know, all of those features uh, are, are what characterise the schools that are struggling the most. Um, and, you know, we know from international research that the biggest impact that you can have 
on the quality of the learning outcomes of the pupils is the quality of the teaching that they're receiving. And yet that quality cannot be high if you've got all of those features in place, there's a high turnover, et cetera. So if we can improve retention, um, we can address, we can begin to address those issues. The, the, the teachers will get better because they'll, you know, they will have that ongoing development. They'll have more job satisfaction. They'll be happy about coming to work. The relationships with the pupils will improve and um, the outcomes will follow. I hope Mr. the Secretary of, new Secretary of State is, uh, <laughs> is listening to this podcast. Thank you very much, Sam, for today. It's been excellent talking to you. Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.